Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 90 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have mainly been wondering why all lifts have a mirror. Is that's... it a claustrophobia thing? I don't know, that's a very good question. I've never thought about that and now, yeah, I'm perplexed. Because I tell you what, they don't have flattering lighting. It's not for no, they really don't. Mm. And also, every time I get in the lift at my flat, which I don't very often because I only live on the first floor, so you know, yeah, I always feel compelled. Join me in puzzling it out. Yeah. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I had a really, really bad we didn't leave the EU hangover. A hangover caused by booze rather than you were sad we didn't leave, right? I was say. No, it was a hangover caused by booze that I drank because we didn't leave the EU. So sort of celebratory hangover, mm, yeah. but a hangover nonetheless. But a hangover nonetheless. Yeah. And I'm Jen Offord, and last week I watched and enjoyed a nature programme. I'm guessing we'll end up talking about that in Outside the Box, is it? Maybe. No, it wasn't. It was uh, was about weasels. (laughs) Well, you should watch Seven Worlds, because, and we will talk about it in Outside the Box, which is coming up this week. There was a snake on that, right? It's made out of rocks, basically. I'm not lying. A, it's made out of rocks. A snake made of rocks? Yeah, and B, it's got a fake spider on its tail. It's got like a, a, a pretend spider on its tail that it, it lies down in the rocks. So it look, I mean, it's not literally made of rocks, but it looks like rocks. So it yeah. lies down in rocks and it puts its tail up and the little birds fly up and go, oh, a spider. And they go to eat it and it goes, no, snake, and eats it. That sounds horrible. It sounds like a Halloween episode of Art Attack with Neil Buchanan. <laughs> <laughs> I've made the spider out of rocks. Isn't nature amazing? Yeah. Imagine if we terrifying. just had like a fake something that we grew. Can I just tell you very briefly about the weasels? Yeah. So there's a man called Rob who has somehow managed to monetize tickling weasels. <laughs> Rob the weasel tickler. He does like a sideline in like nature painting, but it looks a bit like fan art of animals. I'm not going to lie to you, so I'm not sure how well he does out of that. But <laughs> he tickles weasels for a living. He's devoted like his whole garden basically to mustelids, right? So he has a part of the garden called... Stoat City drops Mike <laughs> and then there's like weasel land and whatever and he's built underneath it a fucking tunnel so he can like whiz around underneath this like weaselly paradise so he can be closer to the weasels and he is married with children well like, he's my not next just question a weirdo. has been answered 
Weasel Tickling sounds like someone who's in uh, one of those, oh, have a banana uh, songs, you know, My Old Man's a Dustman. My Old Man's, My old man's a, weasel a Weasel Tickler, tickler. Yeah. says Rod's Children. Later on, I catch up with the very lovely indeed Janet Ellis, author, a nurse while Blue Peter presenter, and I reckon if she was delighted, she would have totally got the Weasel Tickler on. Yep. Uh, I speak to Rebecca Morden about Green and Women Everywhere, a project revisiting recent history and celebrating direct action by women. Lovely stuff. Mm. In Journey Off the Blocks, I'll be talking boxing and hockey with a cheeky bit of squash thrown in. And grab your coat, loves, you're going to get fucked as Dunleavy does disaster does the day after tomorrow. Crikey, nearly slid off my chair with that offer. <laughs> Wowzers. But first, the election, the pay gap, and the British government does something good? No, sorry, no. Sorry, what now? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we look at the news with the same bemused fascination we do that photo of Lindsay Hoyle watching the rugby. I love that some of the stories focused on his socks rather than the fact he posted he was watching rugby while facing away from the television. I was concerned about how far his cup of tea was away. That was in, in, within reaching distance. I saw the one of Boris Johnson and the tablecloth. There's like a TV in front of him. On a sort of green and white gingham tablecloth. Who yeah, it's on like a, a like a like, round table. Yeah, but it's got like a, a rough the table. Like what are they called when they go round a bed? Oh, what are a they? Valance. A valance. A yes. valance. Yeah. That it's like that. It's a table with a valance, leading people to wonder what was underneath the table. One of his children. I think a naked man balancing a tabletop on his back. <laughs> so an election is coming and we could talk about the rights and wrongs of treating a general election as a referendum on Europe or indeed what Jess Phillips was so on point about last week, the possibility that it will return exactly the same result. Mm-hmm. But what would be the point of that? We are where we are. It's happening on December the 12th. Register to vote, people. Register to vote. What we can talk about is the number of MPs we know for a fact won't be returning to the House in December. 50 of them are not standing at the next election, although it's worth pointing out some of them, Ken Clark, for example, were very much planned retirements. Others, however, are the result of the current political climate. And bearing that in mind, guess what, guys? 18 of them are women. While political opponents were quick to jeer about fears of losing, especially to those who changed party allegiance since the last election, Nick Bowles, for example, for many it seemed rather like the death knock in journalism. Failing wasn't half as scary as the idea of succeeding. Heidi Allen, MP for South Cambridgeshire, who I interviewed just a few weeks ago, announced her decision not to contest her seat, which she would very likely have won. No, seriously, I'd have put money on it. Mm Mm-hmm. For Alan, the abuse, the stress, the need to install panic alarms has just become too much. She said, I am exhausted by the invasion into my privacy and the nastiness and intimidation that has become commonplace. It's especially grim that Alan reported being pushed to her decision by an email calling her a baby killer, a reference to a speech she gave in the Commons last year in support of Stella Creasy's ultimately successful bid to bring full reproductive rights to the women of Northern Ireland a speech in which Alan talked about her own decision to have an abortion. So, yeah, big round of applause, guys. We lost a woman who spoke up for women. Bra fucking though. I saw a story that said that Boris Johnson might have a fight on his hands to retain the Uxbridge seat. Now, it was in The Guardian, so clearly they've got an agenda. But what would happen if the Prime Minister loses his seat? Well, then they need to elect They have to elect another Prime Prime Minister. Minister. 
So they'd have to have a leadership contest have have a leadership. immediately of, after of, an election. Yeah. That would be fucked, wouldn't I it? I would imagine that there's a holding position, which is... A, does he have a deputy? I think there's like a de facto deputy, isn't there? there? Or Theresa May had a de facto deputy, but there wasn't anyone with the official title, I believe. Yeah, it's not a title that exists, Deputy Prime Minister. So maybe it would be Rhys Mogg. Jesus. What I will say, though, I, I tend to be... You know, not get involved in any of these. Oh, the Lib Dems, the Labour, they do this. Because I think if you want Remain to happen, if we are going to treat this like a referendum on Europe, then I'm going to vote for a Remain party and I'm going to have to swallow some of the stuff that I don't like about them. But what I will say is, I think, talking of women getting up and saying something powerful in Parliament, I do not, do not, do not understand the Lib Dems' decision to run against Rosie Duffield in Canterbury. Rosie Duffel got up and gave that great speech about domestic abuse yeah, quite recently. She is ardently pro-Remain. They don't need a competition there. Try and win another seat off the Tories. Don't take seats off the Remain Labour MPs. It's almost as if they're yellow <laughs> Tories. <laughs> it is a little, isn't it? Ooh. OK, I'm going to be the tasty good news filling in a sandwich made on faecal bread. Hey. Given the absolute bin fire Boris Johnson and his cronies are fueling, it almost pains me to admit that the British government has done a good thing. For women, it's just a drop of clean water in an ocean of hot liquid shit, but I am shook. And in fairness, it is an excellent drop, as the government has committed to a seven-year, £67.5 million initiative to prevent violence against women and girls globally, making Britain the biggest government funder of programmes in this field. Launched by the Department for International Development, the programme, catchily titled What Works to Prevent Violence, colon, Impact at Scale. (laughs) That is, just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? looks to build on the success of projects that have already shown reductions in violence across Africa and Asia, while also piloting and researching new ideas to tackle the global crisis, which, according to the World Health Organization, sees one in three women worldwide experiencing physical and or sexual violence in her lifetime. The Secretary of State for International Development, Alok Sharma, said... Violence against women and girls affects communities around the world. It is an issue we must continue to tackle in both developing and developed countries. However, for women and girls living in extreme poverty, the threat is even higher. Failure to address this issue is not an option, and doing nothing condemns future generations to repeat this cycle of violence. Absolutely. Well done, the UK government. And now I need a lie down. Anyway, hey guys, uh, how do you reckon the old gender pay gap's going? We'll be putting money down on stuff. Uh, if you want. Is it all finished? Is it done? Is it closed? <laughs> I mean, we're probably quite close to sorting it, right? Yeah. Sorry, guys, my bad. We're absolutely nowhere near sorting it, according to stats released by the Office for National Statistics last week. Well, colour me surprised. No, who knew, right? In fact, the gender pay gap among full-time employees is 8.9%, which the ONS describes as little changed from 2018. And that is very much a nicer way of saying, actually... It rose a bit <laughs> uh, from 8.6%. It's so. not 0.3%, but it's a <laughs> yeah. little change. I still changed much. Could have, could have changed the other way. Yeah. We're, just, we're just being coy. It's changed in the wrong direction, but not by much. So since 2012, you might remember 2012, it's when things were good oh, and and we were only marginally shitter at paying women. We've actually only seen a decline of 0.6 percentage points in the gender pay gap for full-time employees since 2012. That's much, a, is it? seven years, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's less than 0.1% a year. Yeah, it's pretty bad. 
Although, because of some progress for part-time workers, the overall gap has dropped from 17.8% in 2018 to 17.3% in 2019. So that's sorted, right? But in news that will surprise, I'm going to say no one in this room, (laughs) it's older women who come out of this worse. According to the ONS, for those under 40, the pay gap is now close to zero, while the 11.4% gap for 40 to 49-year-olds is decreasing. However, for those over 50, the pay gap is more than 15% and apparently not declining strongly over time. <laughs> Again, I mean, they're using quite coy language, but we're, we're not getting anywhere near sorting this out. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's bleak. So let's segue seamlessly to Samira Ahmed, friend of the show. Yay! Yay! So she's currently suing the BBC for... £693,245, that was harder harder to say than I imagined, in lost earnings over unequal pay after she was paid £440 per episode of Newswatch, a programme she presented, compared to the £3,000 per episode Jeremy Vine was pocketing for points of view. Both programmes are of similar length, featuring viewer feedback, so it's kind of like sort of a similar vibe is, mm-hmm. is the argument. But it's okay because after Vine left the job last year, the BBC gave the points of view gig to Tina Dahili, another woman of colour, who now gets paid £400 to do the voiceover for the show. So that seems fair, doesn't it? There's a Guardian article about it which sort of details the BBC's response to Samira Ahmed's allegations and, oh, it made me angry. It made me very angry. Now, again, this is going to surprise everyone. It feels like they've not learnt their lesson no. from Carrie Gracie. It's just the way they double down on it. Like, it is really infuriating. And then to be like, well, Tina Tahili's only getting paid £400. And like you say, like, guys, you, you do realise that's... They're like, all right, all right. So that bloke did get paid a lot more. But if we look at another woman, the women are equal. Is this not what you're trying to get? Exactly. <laughs> more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I make like Jimmy Cricket. Because, yep, despite some hefty dollops of sexism covered in the Bush Telegraph, come here, there's more. There's always more. Over in the US, wheels have been set in motion to take the state of Missouri back to the 70s. And just who is this backwards move going to affect the most? Absolutely no prizes. Sorry, people, it is, of course, women. And no prizes if you've already donned your handmaid's bonnet. And guess what might be the issue here either? Obviously, it's all about rolling back reproductive rights, because of course it is. Missouri has a population of more than 6.1 million people, and it has one abortion clinic. One. Sorry, in the whole state? In the whole state. Oh. If anyone wants to learn to count, one is the number of abortion clinics in the state of Missouri. And last week, an administrative hearing was held to decide whether the state can revoke the licence for that Planned Parenthood St. Louis clinic, with a ruling expected about that in February. Should the licence be revoked, Missouri will become the first state without a functioning abortion clinic to exist since 1974. According to the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services, the DHSS, this is concern over four, what they're terming, failed abortions – but what are actually cases where complications arose and the patient had to return to the clinic for another procedure. And the DHSS is so very concerned that it's taken to tracking the date of Planned Parenthood's patients' periods in an attempt to figure out which of them had undergone failed abortions. So yeah, okay, just to make that clear, American government officials have spreadsheets on the menstrual cycles of thousands of women. That's a thing. 
And it's not even a new thing. In April, the Trump administration was found to be tracking the periods of refugee girls under government care in a process headed up by anti-abortionist Scott Lloyd. But the official lines in both of these creepiest foot controlling stories is that it's all being done to protect vulnerable women. It's probably worth noting that the state of Missouri has previously refused to track such things as opioid prescriptions and gun ownership because of invasion of privacy concerns, but, you know, under his eye. I don't even understand how that would work. What, tracking the periods? Yeah. I mean, I just want Because some people just don't even have regular periods. So, I mean, what, are you going to be hauled out for for having... They suspect that you were pregnant and had an abortion when, in fact, you've got... You only get one every three months because of polystick ovaries or something. I mean, I don't. I was going to say, are they employing people especially to do this? Like, or, do, or like, is it? Do they have better things to do with their time? Like, I'm not even very good at tracking my own period. Like, what the fuck? Do you think they're developing an app? That's what it's all about. Because those work really well. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. There was this crazy idea going around when Alabama was fucking around with theirs that that they were gonna they wouldn't let women leave the state. I mean, unless they'd had a pregnancy test in case they were leaving to have an abortion. Fucking hell. I mean, obviously, this, that didn't ever go to the full it whatever. It locked, yeah. But it was an idea that I people mean, were like, hey, this is what we can do. It's bad enough, really, isn't it, that it even occurred to someone. May the Lord open. Hi, I am joined on the phone by Rebecca Morden, who is co-coordinator. That's quite hard to say. I know, challenge, isn't it? <laughs> of and Women Everywhere, an exciting new project, which actually I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm going to hand it over to Rebecca to explain. It's taken from the phrase that the women used themselves when they were running Green and Common Women's Peace Camp. So basically, I suppose we'll talk more about the camp in a bit, but it was, it's, it's, it was a very inspiring and far-reaching piece of women's activism that ran from 81 to the 2000s. And I visited it with my mum when I was little, and I'm now 43. And I just had a kind of horrible revelation in the last few years that anyone younger than me didn't seem to know about it. And that was a massive piece of kind of cultural robbery from women, basically, that we wouldn't know this in really important piece of our very recent history. Not even in some cases, it's not even history. And these women are still all doing amazing things and affecting our society. And our society is affected by Greenham. So the project is, in answer to your original question, a project that we then came up with, me and my um, co-coordinator, Kate Caro, who's a fantastic writer who also runs an online resource called The Heroin Collective, which is fabulous. It is. It is, isn't it? It's marvellous. So we came up with this idea that we would go to the Heritage Lottery and ask them if we could interview. Well, we, we said originally, I think, about 50 women, but so many green women came forward when we put a shout out out. And they were all so fascinating. We've actually ended up going up to about it's over 100 women now. Wow. So we've really like, we've maxed out the grant. So we've interviewed all these women. We've photographed a lot of these women, done beautiful portraits of them with this fantastic photographer called Christine Bradshaw, who's just amazing. So she's been going all around the country cataloguing these women for us. She's, she's just amazing. Uh, and then we've made, with um, a fantastic uh, artist and lecturer at the University of Bristol, at the University of West England in Bristol, called uh, she's called Rachel Mills. Her expertise is going to help us make a pop-up exhibition, which is now touring around the country. And inside it, you can listen to a fabulous piece of sound art by the lovely Sarah Llewellyn, which cuts together all these different voices from the, from the archive of interviews and gives this amazing kind of overview of all these different experiences women had and, and their politics and their, their spirit, really. You sit in a specially made Greenham-style tent that's all printed with, like, archive and memories of theirs. 
and there's postcards and there's green and women there to chat to you so it's a really nice little pop-up it's just it all falls down fits in a suitcase and gets taken around by our project volunteers but it's a lovely way to start the conversation that, that's really what the project's about let's start talking about greenham again because all of the issues around it are, are just hugely relevant again you know we're looking at extinction rebellion now we're looking at the me too movement we're looking at loads of stuff around kind of nuclear armament uh, and the environment it's a really crucial time to look back at what very successful previous activists have done yeah and, and learn from it basically i'm 45 i can remember greenham common i have to say i mean it was always on the television or certainly always on the news but mm. I, I have to say when i first started looking into this about a year ago basically because i went to the imperial war museum and while i was there i bought a print of a woman ah. two things i was really sort of shocked to discover that even though i knew about it was number one was how long it went on for and number mm. two was the sheer volume of women involved in it yeah i mean there were events that had tens of thousands of women there oh yeah they're, they're doing embrace the base 30,000 women and girls hold hands all around the nine mile military fence all around Greenham that's only in the sort of first couple of years of, of the camp and that is the biggest action, women-only action since suffrage. And then later on in the camp, a bit, a bit later, you know, a few years on in, in the camp history, they do a, a similar thing that goes from Aldermaston to Greenham with people holding hands. And that is, uh, they think it's 70,000 plus. That's incredible. It's phenomenal. And that's before the internet and before mobile phones. Exactly. <laughs> that is, that is crazy. Like that? What in particular first drew you to this story? What sort of spoke to you about Greenham Common? Well, my, it radicalised my mum. So my mum was just a casual, a fairly casual attendee. She was very involved in her local CND. So she ran that and she went along. And it was just, it coincided with her being, having me and me being the first child. She was very in touch with what it means to be a woman and a mother and to have a little girl that you're bringing up into the world and what kind of world you bring her up into. So she's very concerned, like everyone was at that time and still should be, about the bomb. She was running a really fantastic cnd group locally and she took herself off to greenham um to do things like night watch so do things like the local people um, and supporters and women for the country actually would volunteer for maybe women that were living at the camp who'd come out of prison and really needed a night's sleep with no hassle so they'd stay up all night so the supporters would stay up all night and what you know help just keep the camp safe and guard them so they could just rest or bring supplies or run crashes or be part of actions my mum got arrested lying down in front of margaret thatcher's car and things like that <laughs> just brilliant and you know we did, did her court day and has amazing stories about that and stuff so she went because of the bomb but she was radicalized by the by the feminism and the, oh, the women only environment and it just made it like so many women have told me what i've been into we've been doing the interviews as well and um, you hear it so much in the archive you know you went thinking you thought you were going for one reason and then the ways in which sexism kind of intersects and interplays with class and race and basically the reality of patriarchy you'd all be discussing it you'd be witnessing it you'd be sharing experience of it and it totally blew women's minds but it also kind of dropped in and made complete sense and opened their eyes and they had that space to do that because it was women only. And they weren't, if, they, if you were there, you suddenly weren't looking after anyone else. You were just thinking about what it meant to be a woman in a patriarchy and what other world you wanted to be possible instead of that. When you think of how little space there is for that, for women anyway, now, okay, it just ever, like how you find that space is so interesting. The representation I, I got from the news, I mean, from within my house, you, you know, I don't, I don't think, I can't remember anyone 
having anything other than sort of goodwill towards the green and women, to be honest, in the environment oh, really? that, I, that I grew <laughs> up in. It's certainly not universal. But how were women, these women, represented in the media? Uh, it was very, very mixed. And one of the reasons that I think we feel so proud of this this interview process is that we we've had women be so open with us when they've frankly been really badly burnt before and could have been very distrustful and we haven't found that at all they've been lovely so they had a lot of support from the guardian the guardian is a a name of a paper that comes up over and over again in the interviews as being like oh they were on our side sort of thing but they had some like the sun were horrific daily mail horrific and they had Several times, I think, they were infiltrated by journalists. So women posing as people just arriving at the camp and living with them for a week and making friends with them and hanging out and things. Because lots of women would come for just a couple of nights or a week or whatever yeah, and then go back to their lives. So it was quite easy to come and do that as a journalist and then go off and, and they just wrote horrible things about them, not terrible and, and lots of wild inaccuracies, things about them kind of like acquiring wealth and making money out of the camp and to try and stop donations and support for it and lots of stuff about how they were neglectful terrible mothers you know which of course having been there as a child I'm like it was lovely like yeah. everyone was so nice to you I, I remember it very very vividly for being like an idol you know just being loved all these lovely women being lovely there was one story that someone told me that was hilarious that was a woman had come to the camp um, and her car had broken down. They just came over, looked at her car and she was like, can any of you call the AA or anything? And they were like, uh, no, no, we don't need that. We can fix it for you. And she was like, are you sure? I thought I'd be here overnight. And they're like, no, no, we can fix it. So these women just fixed her car for her, gave her a hug. She was like in tears, really grateful, drove away. Then it turned out she was a reporter for oh, God. <laughs> the Daily Mail. But I don't know which. And she wrote a sort of story about how, you know, a, a group of dirty lesbians had sexually harassed her outside the camp. And they were like, we fixed your car. <laughs> so there was there was stuff like that. There, oh, really. wow. there was some like, merciless kind of like twisting of of how of how of how things happened. I mean, they laugh about it now, but it, you know, listening to it, it's really shocking. There was a definite agenda against. It was threatening all those women together, going, "Yeah, hang on, patriarchy sucks. Yeah, <laughs> let's change it." Can I ask about their relationship mm. with the police? Because I mean, mm. several of these women ended up in Holloway, didn't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, they they filled the local prison. After a little while, there was no more room to have women in those. Prisons. Um, and a lot of them then were then moved into into Holloway and lots and lots of them went through Holloway and did, you know, weeks of time, you know, at a time, basically for civil civil disobedience and, and you know, property damage. So quite pretty stern stuff. Yeah. For, for for not having hurt anybody, quite specifically being doing non-violent direct actions, you know, no violence at all. The prison was famous for, for having Myra Hindley in it. So lots of them tell you stories about having been taught to knit by Myra Hindley, which is quite bizarre. Wow. Um, I know, some of them knew she was and some of them didn't. And they're like, oh, that woman who taught me to knit is actually Myra Hindley. Um but the because uh, she was there sort of long term. Yeah. But the stuff in Holloway is really interesting, and it overlaps with suffrage again. I think that green women were, were radicalised by the conditions of women in prison, and a lot of them went on to be campaigners uh, for women to have better a better experience of prison and, and against the way that the, the prison system works. And some women apparently from prison came to Greenham afterwards um, to live because they were where else do we well where else do I find the support that I need and 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 assimilate myself back into society. 
and still be around all women as well. So there's an interesting correlation between those. But you didn't ask me that, did you? You asked me about police. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the, the police, the system, I suppose, is the question. Because, I mean, let's not forget, this, this is at a time when the country was being run by a woman. Technically. You have to count her. <laughs> yeah, we did a whole documentary about that. Whether we want her on our team or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, she wasn't on women's team, was she? No, she very famously said, I owe nothing to feminism, didn't she? Yeah. Whereas I feel like I owe everything to feminism. <laughs> Can we look at the Greenham Common project and say it was a success or it was a failure, do you think? Well, uh, I think the one of the things about Greenham is that it's huge. So it's a very loaded question to say, whether it's successful. Basically, there are some really amazing successes. As a piece of activism, it's hugely successful. Individually for different women, they will tell you whether it was successful for them or not personally. And the whole point of femi- of of Greenham is it comes out of a time of radical feminism. So the idea that the personal is political, you know, is part of how they speak about it. And the idea that green women are everywhere comes out of that. The idea that you can take Greenham away with you. You don't have to have lived there. You have to have taken the essence of it. You have to be, you know, you, you can go anywhere and do the same thing. Kind of thing. it's permission to, to spread your feminist and, and your human wings, I suppose. I think the thing the thing about the, the more concrete stuff that's really lovely um, is that Greenham, I mean, it had sort of, very broadly speaking, it had three big campaigning aims. One of them was about, was about the nuclear threat and war. One of them was about patriarchy and one of them was about the common land. So the simplest one is that Greenham Common has been given back and is now common land. And one of the reasons the women stayed so long, even after cruise missiles left the base, was because they were like, it's still not common land. We'd like that back, please. And so in the end, it had been with the Americans since the World Wars and it was given back to the people of this of this country to have as common land and it's one of the last pieces of common land it's really important and that's that's a huge achievement that purely almost I mean almost completely purely put down to, the, to those women campaigning um they they, they did man cruise missiles did not stay at that base you know and I think that's partly to do with world politics but the greener women influenced the world politics hugely around um making everyone aware of the threat and network they networked internationally and you know brought women from all over the world and worked work through like the courts to get big show trials that where they could interview uranium workers being exploited in south africa and the creation for the creation of newcomers so they did a huge job of making normal people who weren't living at the camp go my god this is awful on every level you know and dangerous um, and I don't think they, I think they also made it an, an untenable place to have a nuclear weapon. These women were breaking into the base every single night and doing peaceful, direct actions. But they were doing things like painting on the planes. And, and once you've painted on it, even if you, know, you paint a, a big peace symbol, but you've still painted on it. That is now a decommissioned plane. They now can't take that out. They have to do hundreds of thousands, thousands of pounds of checks on that plane in case you've done anything else. And just because you were there. So I think they made it a place where they couldn't keep you know, the English and Americans. It was just no point in them throwing this endless yeah. taxpayers money at keeping stuff there that turned out actually not just a few hardcore activists, but most people in the country did not want there. So actually, in terms of like changing the world to be safer in terms of the nuclear threat, I think we can say we owe them a massive debt. I think in terms of the common land, absolutely. What an achievement. Huge debt again. This, and I think we're all joining them on still trying to end patriarchy. That's a bit of a work in process. But <laughs> they certainly made a massive difference to an entire generation of, of mothers like mine who brought up children like me who, and, you know, who are all still 
those people leading that that, that the the fight for women's rights and, and LGBTQI rights in, in in so many ways. Like it, it's it's amazing where green and women and green and children end up. And loads of green women left and became social workers and therapists and uh, and nurses and doctors and lawyers and barristers. So they went into the professions that we again all owe our kind of civil rights and our our comfort as a society to our betterment. So I think we I think we owe them a ton to be honest. Yeah. I very much agree. Can, mm. can, can I ask you, looking at the, the way the world has changed, because we said at the start, you know, this was this was in a pre-social media age. This was it was mm. it was harder to do. That said, it's easier to create activism now, but also it's easier to just sit in your house and call yourself an activist and not and not get out. Sign your and, online petitions and things. Exactly. <laughs> do, do you think that Greenham Common? not green and common itself but a similar action could happen again yeah i think we're seeing amazing stuff happening i think we're seeing stuff around i i, I was really inspired by the me too movement which happened lar- largely online but was a massive force for change for a lot of women and personal development for women i mean, that has been huge i think that's it's been key to see how quick the backlash has been against it it's always a sign mm-hmm. of oh is that likely to achieve something really quite significant and you you know, see a strong battle against it. it's it's almost a sign of oh you were going along the right lines there yeah uh, and we must keep pushing on them um and i think you know extinction rebellion is 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 not dissimilar i think that the radical green movement the stuff around anti-fracking power beyond borders there's a lot of of the of of, of actions that i think definitely have and the stuff that happened in london earlier this year extinction rebellion where they were and the arrests and the way they handled, because you're talking about the system and things, they, they deliberately harked back to Greenham and actually vocally you know, credited Greenham. And the system, again, it's it's a very sort of di- diverse, different women's experience of it. But by and large, the, the, the stories around how the women were treated within within the system of governance is fascinating. You know, you have got things like Margaret Thatcher saying, you know, she actually put out a shoot to kill order on them she, she said yeah i know there was a whole load of um official documents that became sort of open to the public again in the last few years and one of the things was her saying right if any more women break onto that site they cross that fence they're on that base you you can shoot them and kill them and not i mean not there are there are things that the police did and the military did and frankly the americas did that are very shocking and that you know do not make do not color them well but no Greenham woman was ever shot by a police mm-hmm. by a policeman or a member of the British Army on that base, and they were there every night. And I think that was just a line that the police, that the soldiers thought, I did not join, you know, the, the defence of my country to be shooting women in peacetime who look like my mum and my sisters and whatever. I just I'm just not doing it. I'm just not doing that. Yeah. Um, but they but they but I think that the police and the system in general learned a huge amount from Greenham that if we don't talk about green and we perhaps as people who'd like to change society can't learn, there's been a lot of like laws around what you can and can't do, what you can be arrested for, what you can be prosecuted for. They're all very different since Greenham, partly because of Greenham and partly because of like, people taking advantage, I would say, of the anti-terrorism laws and using it to push through stuff that I think is more detrimental to our civil liberties, but that's a personal opinion, obviously. But basically, it's a lot stricter now. There are things that the Greenham women could exploit. There was also benefits. They could go on the dole and live at Greenham and do activism for the good of us all. You can't do that now. You can't barely get benefits if you're disabled and you actually need them. People are dying of a lack of benefits now. So I think that those times are very different. And that 
all those things are things we have to consider if we're going to try and do meaningful mass actions or, or create meaningful change as a society. But it'd be, but it'd be really healthy to do that within a perspective of like we can only do that if we talk about this stuff and talk to the women who were there and talk to the successful activists of the you know of the of the recent past and learn and and they talk about that in the archives they're all very aware of it they've got good advice for us in their interviews yeah and I think as well where we are now as a country you know facing a really uncertain future I mean who knows what's mm-hmm. going to happen on October the thirty first. We, we oh, seem to have this thing where we've set generations against each other, where we've become about young people and old people sort of fighting. And I, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily um, how it is, but it's certainly quite how often it's portrayed in the media. So I think it's 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 really good to remind people of our generation and younger that, you know, women of our mother's generations got up and did something and yeah and we should respect them for that yeah absolutely we definitely should it, it falls into ageism again doesn't it yeah fearing and distrusting the youth and dismissing anyone older than us kind of thing it's really good to go look what people like, look what young people do look at the school strikes they know that they they know what the state of the world that they're going to inherit and how we have spectacularly failed to to create a, a safe environment for them as we should have and and look at the experiences that that took women to green them for exactly the same reasons who are now you know there are they're older wiser women than us now but at the time they were just another generation you know that we've interviewed women that were there when they were 14 and we've interviewed women who were there um, in, in their in their middle age, who are now obviously old women, and we've and we've interviewed people who've talked about old women that they were there with, who of course have now died, and you know I think there is something about having that conversation between generations of activists that then now and still to come, which is the only way we will affect you know change, and we have to let go of knee jerk and the ageist sexist stuff to do that, but that's a valuable thing to do, isn't it? Definitely. Now, I know you, as well as doing your tour, you, you're doing some talks, aren't you, about yes. this. Can, can, I, can I ask you for a plug? So if people want to know more, they will know where to go online or where to go in person to learn more yes. about Green and Women Everywhere. I would love to give you two plugs, if that's all right. No problem. So um, the first, the, the simplest way to look at what we're doing is to go on our... We're going to have a really lovely full website with all these archive interviews on it. But we, at the moment, it's being built and the archives are being cleaned up and getting ready to go on it. So it's, it's all in process, in place by the end of the year. But we have a holding page that is greenandwomeneverywhere.co.uk. And that's got our list of exhibitions on it. And as th- that's still growing and developing because people are hearing about it. Um, we're building that tour, those tour schedules. And one of our things with the talks is we either Kate or myself will turn up and give a quick uh, pricey of the project and a pricey about the history of what Greenham was but then we basically we, we try we, our policy is we try not to speak for the Greenham women we try to speak with them um, so we so what the talks are is usually us doing an intro and then Greenham women locally to wherever that talk is um, chatting about uh, basically we host like a Q&A uh, either a com- conversation with or Q&A if the audience is kind of lively enough yeah so they're really nice they're nice. They're nice things, I think. Um, and they really have great insight. And you meet some fantastic green and women. And in order to make all of that happen and all this project keep going and hopefully 
sustain itself for future years we'd like to keep extending it because more people want it but it just takes travel money it takes exhibition uh content money like things we're printing and and, and materials so i'd love to plug the gofund we have a green and women everywhere on gofundme if you just google that green and women everywhere gofundme anything you can give us we're commissioning art we're trying to build the project we're trying to build the exhibition and we're trying to get more interviews um, particularly from the, the deaf and disabled community, because there were women there um, f- uh, who could give us interviews about that, um, uh, who we need special support to interview. Um, so anything you can give us will help so much. And then hopefully there'll be more talks and more art and more exposure and more conversation about it all. Great. Yes. Give money. That sounds brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Rebecca. It's been really no interesting. Thank you for having me. We really love talking about it. What are you doing on November the 18th? I'm thinking of, and I want you to brace yourself for this, Hannah, but I am thinking of talking to some men. Ah. Wow. Any yeah. men in particular? Handpicked three. Craig Parkinson, that's right. He of unbuttoning and buttoning his jacket on Line of Duty and also the amazing Two Shot podcast. Nish Kumar, he of the Mass Report and General Funniness. And Mr. Joe Lysett. He of hilarity on Sue's whenever he is in a room. And fantastic. What I can only describe as blouses. He does have incredible blouses. What do you think the chances of getting all those people in the same room at the same time are, Mickey? I'm glad you've asked, Joan, because I've been working very hard to make this happen alongside my (laughs) lovely colleagues, Jen and Hannah, who you may know well. And uh, it is going to happen at King's Place on November the 18th, which is International Men's Day Eve. It's going to be mint. Get your ticket. Yeah, if you want to get to www.standardissuepodcast.com, you will find details of that and our many other live shows. I love that you always say the www. I know. I I interviewed Sam Avery, another man, once, and he said it, and it just made me laugh. So I like to put it in. Hello, I am joined on the phone by author Janet Ellis, who I imagine quite a few of you lovely lot will still think of as Blue Peter presenter Janet Ellis. Hey, Janet. I think they will, yeah. It's an age thing, though, Mickey. You know, there's there's a whole generation who I think have turned out rather well, who <laughs> definitely know me or recognise my voice. And then there are others, particularly younger people, who just think, when did they let old people on Blue Peter? <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely an age thing. <laughs> So we're going to chat to you because your second book, How It Was, is currently available in all good bookshops. So I devoured it in about two days, so I know what it's about. But could you give the (laughs) listeners a notion of what it is all about, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's about a woman, Marion, who's looking back over her life while she sits at her dying husband's bedside. She's an old woman. Her age isn't specified, but she's obviously not a youngster. And she's looking back unwillingly, really, because she's not one given to reminiscence, to um, an affair that she had in the 1970s when she and her family, which is her husband and her daughter, Sarah, who's 14, and her seven-year-old son, Eddie, were living in rural Kent. And she realizes, through reading her daughter's diary, that her daughter is involved with the same man. So it's the story of what happened to the family, obviously the devastating consequences of that. It's also about mothers and daughters, which I have experience of being both mother and daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's also about the chosen invisibility of the older woman, really, because I think we hear a lot, don't we, about older people getting invisible, you know, and not being taken notice of them anymore. And I'm now in my 60s, and I think actually sometimes it's a chosen state. 
It simply means that you know your life, you know what happened to you, you know the terrible things, the wonderful things, the ordinary things that comprise your life, but you don't necessarily share them. And no one can tell by looking at you. And I've always found that absolutely fascinating. It is fascinating. We're currently doing a series on the menopause. And while there's like a lot of negative stuff that goes with that upheaval in every woman's life, there's also a confidence that comes from giving zero fucks. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a slow burn thing, actually, because obviously I'm through all that now. And I really admit that mine wasn't the trickiest menopause in the world, although goodness knows, talking to girlfriends, I do think I got off lightly. However, I did experience the really, really unfamiliar anxiety that everybody shares, I think. You know, that seems to be one of those things that it catches you so on the hop. You know, if you've been fairly okay about going through life, you know, and it slings and arrows, to suddenly find yourself or myself worrying about tiny details and obsessing about phone calls that I'd had or email exchanges, you know, looking for nuance where there was none. And it was ages before I thought, this is first of all out of character and also sortable. And of course, like a lot of people, it does take you getting in front of the right doctor and then getting the right information. And, and I'm on HRT now. And I think I'd actually have to wrestle it from my dying hand. Quite <laughs> frankly. But I, you know, I do think I, you know, my generation particularly has an obligation to discuss this with each other because that's the best way of finding out stuff. And also with the next lot coming along because... It isn't frightening. It is life-changing. But I think mostly, touching wood here, mostly in a good way. And I think what you said about older women and that invisibility, and when we talk about that or see it represented in the media, it's almost like it's thrust upon older women, like, oh, they're invisible, they're irrelevant. Where actually, it's quite a relief to come out of the limelight of being cat-cold and various things that go along with being a younger woman. absolutely. You know, to this day, I cannot approach a group of workmen working on the street without thinking, oh, no, at what point do I cross there? And, of course, I am invisible. They're not going to take any fucking notice. They might say something to the dog. But, you know, <laughs> I, am, I am past that stage. But it's amazingly consistent, that feeling, isn't it, of just sort of preparing yourself. And it's weird that it still goes on and sort of terrible that it still goes on. But it's also, I suppose, that when when you're younger, you know, of course, you are in a lot of competition with your peer group, you know, whether you like it or not. They're competing for partners, work, experiences, you know, Instagram opportunities. Everything feels as though you're all in the starting blocks and you're all heading off together. So it is a huge relief to get somewhere and think, I'm now running at my own pace. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't go through an angelic conversion. I'm still highly competitive and jealous and all those other ugly things. But it does mean that you just have a chance of being yourself, truly yourself. And that invisibility, which, yes, in, in most places is spoken of incredibly pejoratively, you know, as though you've stopped being a sexual being, you've stopped having any sensual connection. And I'm happy to say both of those things are absolute bollocks, you know, just because you're not out there competing, you know, for po- possibly your life partner, possibly the, the father or mother of your children, does not at all mean that you don't still feel stuff and you feel stuff all the time. But you know, it isn't in the same way. And I, you know, I'm, I do feel I'm sort of flying a flag, really, for saying, listen, it's fine. You can be visible when you want. When you're dressed up, you're still going to look the best you ever. But because you're not doing that all the time, because you're happier, 
in your body, hopefully, and certainly in your soul, it is a good place to be. I've always thought out of maiden mother crone, and I'm not a mum, so I have to put that out there, that the crone bit seemed like it was going to be the most fun. Oh, yeah, exactly. Also, I'm, I'm within a whisker now of passing opinions in the street. You know, <laughs> if, I see, if I see a baby without a hat on, you know, that kind of thing, or, you know, a boy with his, with his shoelaces undone. I'm in a whisker. I'm not only telling him his shoelaces undone, but telling him off. I mean, I'm really close, <laughs> and I'm quite looking forward to it. Because, you know, I am that woman that people sometimes give their seat up for on the tube. And let me tell you, I always sit and take it. <laughs> that's the best way to get comfortable and read my book. There's nothing pejorative to me about the ages of women. And I think, you know, each, each one has absolutely amazing things to offer you. And I think you probably have to fight loneliness a bit harder when you're older, mm -hmm. particularly if you've been used to a circle of friends or, you know, a partner perhaps who maybe as your life has changed, maybe you're divorced, maybe there's death involved, you know, maybe, maybe just you've moved away or, you know, the world changes, it does move on. And I think you probably have to fight a little bit harder for company if it doesn't come naturally. But um, that's, that's the bit I've noticed more, you know, that you have to make that thing because... When you're younger, you tend to be in a place where you're seeing people constantly. You know, if it's not a workplace, then it's something to do with perhaps your children's school, or if you're not a parent, it's something to do with the community that you live in. And those things tend to fall away when you get older. And I do think that's, you know, loneliness in our society anyway is a massive problem. And I'm aware of that. I've got friends who would go for ages without speaking to somebody if they didn't really make the effort. And I think that's, that's the bit you probably notice most. But again, you know, once you have, it's fine it's fine and you can move on and then again if you don't want to speak to anyone you can choose that too absolutely that i mean that takes us quite neatly back to marion who is sort of lonely but used to it and quite content in her yes. loneliness and so that's yes. just one of a lot of big themes that you cover in how it was and you do so with i've got to say a really beautifully light touch and i'm oh, trying really really hard to avoid spoilers so i can't mention a lot of them <laughs> But that very tricky relationship between Marion and her teenage daughter, Sarah, absolutely fascinated yeah. me. Because we tend to be sold oh. these picture-perfect mum and daughter stories. And, yeah. and this one is, you know, dramatically antagonistic and competitive. But it feels yeah. a bit more real. They're, they're fighting. I mean, I have to say, and obviously the more I say this, the more I think people just think I sound defensive, <laughs> but it isn't based on my daughters. You know, I've got a couple of daughters, and, and luckily, I'm touching wood here, you know, we've, we've managed to keep speaking to each other. And also my relationship with my mother was a good one, you know, and I really enjoyed her company. But, 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 you know, there is an element of, you know, I think you, it's, you know, you'll know this from being a daughter, that you, you suddenly get to an age where you look at your parents and think, oh, they're people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> People, totally. and I... Oh my goodness! I never. Oh my God! The people I do I like them? You know, do they do they still have sex? Are they people I like? Do they eat and think and drink and act and sleep like me? And it's such a revelation. And the other way around too, that when you suddenly look at your children and think, I've produced a person. You know, not just somebody whose shoes have to fit. I have definitely produced someone who's going to have their own agency, their own life, their own opportunities. And in Marion's case, particularly because, you know, Sarah's coming of age at 14, it's happening in the 1970s, which absolutely no coincidences when I was a teenager. You know, it's happening at a time when there was some movement towards women's lib, towards being fulfilled, towards making choices in your life. But really, the fallout from that was very slow to arrive in most women's lives. So I think they were just aware of a sort of unsettling, you know, like the distant tide, mm -hmm. but they weren't caught up in the tsunami of the big fights, the big battles and the big opportunities too. 
So I think Marion, the mother in my book, can feel all this, but it's distant, a distant drumbeat, really. But when she looks at her daughter and realises that she has everything to come, it is floods of jealousy. It is real unsettling difficulty with producing this person who may live a life that Marion will envy continuously. And I can't say she acts very well. <laughs> but I do think, you know, there is something in that anyway with those relationships which you, you don't exactly take for granted. But it certainly takes you a long time to examine properly. Yes. But you suddenly realise that's, wow, that's a person. You know, and it happens brother and sister, 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 brother, brother too. You know, that those, those people you've shared a house with suddenly appear slightly bigger than they were before, slightly taking up more space and slightly not absolutely having the right page of script. Totally. There was just mum and I for since I was five until mm. she met my stepdad when I was 15. Right. And I don't think it was until I moved away that I thought, oh, my God, Anne's a, Anne's a person. She's this incredible woman. She's raised me on her own whilst also having her heart broken, whilst also going out yeah. and working every day. And it, it clicked yeah. in and it allowed our relationship to shift in a way that yeah. it's never yeah. gone backwards. But I think... In a good way, it made me want to be friends with her. Oh, that's really nice. But also, when you know, when you were fifteen and had a stepdad, was that an uncomfortable thing about sort of watching your mother as, as pre- presumably, you know, quite in touch with a giddy girlhood, you know, being, you know, in fact, you know, lusting after somebody, wanting to be with them, you know, all the sort of things you don't particularly want to watch your parents going through. Yeah, totally. Did that have an effect on you? Um, it was tricky. But now she's 70 in November and she's just uh, moved in with her new boyfriend. And watching her be giddy as a schoolgirl now yes. is a delight. It's just utterly delightful. Well, that's the other thing in, in, in the book is that when Marion has this big affair, you know, this highly unsuitable man, you know, all the feelings that she has are just the same as when you're 14, 15, 28, 52. You know, nothing flipping changes. Exactly. And, you know, I've watched that ex- so many times with girlfriends but also you know when you fancy somebody you just think wow when i feeling this this was this was 13 i should have parked that you know and you don't you don't behave any better and you know i've got people who think should i phone him you know should i think what is this is not jackie magazine for goodness sake but i completely <laughs> get it because because we do become become our teenage selves and you feel exactly the same and nothing changes good for your mum though oh yeah I'm lovely that's so lovely <laughs> It is you lovely. like him? You like her boyfriend? Yeah, he's great. He's great. We just oh. don't talk about politics, Janet. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I've got family like that. <laughs> so going back to the book, I've got to say, it is. I was surprised. I was surprised. It is pretty dark, love. It's, it's, yeah. it's pretty dark. Yeah. Do you think that yeah. will come as a surprise to people who remember you off of the telly? Yes, absolutely. I'm sure it will. And and in some ways, you know, obviously I left Peter a long time ago because you know the, the baby I left to have is now uh, 32. But even so, you know, yeah. you know, it's still all part of everyone's history, including mine. And of course, Blue Peter is still going, and it still has exactly the same image, which is something that I really like about it. You know, it hasn't tried to change its style to fit in with what they might think of modern children. You know, it's still aimed fair and square at the age group it was always aimed at. But yes, of course, Blue Peter presenter immediately, just just those three words, summon up some image of some person. And I know years ago when when I said, you know, foolishly, really, I shouldn't have said it aloud because people had to wait a long time for me to actually do it. But I said, I really want to write. And and, uh, I met an agent, a really successful big agent, who said to me, right, you know, write something, I don't know, um, 
children's presenter turned detective. It'd be great. It'd be great. <laughs> and I thought, well, I can't, I don't think I can because whatever's, you know, boiling away in me isn't that. And also, frankly, I'm not sure if I want to read it. And it's always been quite important to me, you know, that the book I wrote was going to be one that I would want to pick up as well. Not to say that isn't a fine book. You know, if somebody wants to do it, I'm happy to hand it on. But I knew that what I wanted to say was difficult and dark and to do with, you know, the, it's the same with heroin in my first book. They're not popular women. You know, they, they don't behave terribly well. And, and it's, you know, I obviously <laughs> I quite enjoy writing unpopular girls. But equally, I so far, only two books in, but I haven't quite managed the happy ending either. And I'm, I think it's because although I don't think everything finishes on a really, really dark note, you know, I do think it's redemption at the end. And I think, you know, the ultimate message of both books really is that we kind of go on surviving ourselves. You know, yeah. we get in the way of ourselves tons and we do and have done to us terrible and wonderful and brilliant things. But we survive it. We survive. And that's that's my message, really. But yes, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated, obviously, by the dark side and by the reality that you can think you've got everything in place for a perfect life, which is impossible anyway. And the gods have other ideas. You know, fate keeps on happening, as Anita Lewis said in Gentlemen of Fabulous. You know, it's just that's what I think. You know, you, you can you cannot go ahead thinking I'm just walking happily towards the horizon with no problems because there will be a pothole. There will be a puddle. <laughs> Not too many. Kind of want to see how people react. Yeah, yeah. But you, it's right that you you've not written popular women, that, but they're incredibly bloody minded, and I I totally respect <laughs> that. I have a lot of respect for that. <laughs> One of the joys of Blue Peter, looking back on it, obviously I don't watch it anymore because I'm 42. <laughs> but looking back on when I I did always used to come home and sit in front of the telly and watch it. Yeah. You were out there jumping out of aeroplanes yeah. and doing absolutely everything. And, and I think yeah. now society has shifted so that when my yes. friends have a baby and I go to buy a new baby card, I am just met with a sea of blue and pink and it drives me insane. Yeah. Whereas I think yeah. Yeah, when yeah. we were younger, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't as segregated as it is becoming now. It, uh, that's true. And actually, it, it didn't occur to me at the time because I was having too much fun. But Blue <laughs> Peter was absolutely gender non-specific mm -hmm. you know yeah. I, I didn't do the cooking I you know there was no there was no part of it which said oh this is a girl's item ever 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 and I'd been there for quite a long time before I thought this is amazing because it wasn't necessarily like that elsewhere in television I mean when I was first on Blue Peter you know we were in the next live studio to Top of the Pops and I can't think that was a you know a hotbed of uh, oh uh, right on gender politics you know exactly so, you know, I don't, it, we were still fighting, you know, and from the moment I realized that there was a battle to be fought, I joined up because I just thought, you know, I can't bear my generation, certainly the next generation, not to think of themselves as in their proper place all the time. And that means you've got to, you know, especially nowadays, you've got a lot of catching up to do. I think, you know, and the Me Too movement has been eye-opening in all sorts of ways. And I know that when, when it was first flagged, one of my initial reactions, if I'm perfectly honest, was, oh, we put up with all that, you know, and it mm -hmm. was really like waking up in the night and thinking, what am I talking about? Why should anyone ever have to put up with that? I'm always really disappointed when I hear women of my peer group doing that. You know, oh, just tell them to go away, darling. That's what we did. Because it's not on. It's never been on and it's no longer on at all. Agreed, agreed. And you also get that thing, I don't know if you found this as well, when chatting to my female friends... And a couple of them have gone, oh, I'm really lucky. Nothing's ever happened to me. And then they pause oh. and go, oh, 
actually, there was that one thing. Oh, yeah, yeah and there yeah, was yeah, that. And it, it yeah. comes flooding back because we've been trained yeah. to just get yeah. on with it. Just like, okay, that yeah. happened, move on. Yeah, put up with it, you know, just make a noise. It'll be fine. They'll run away. They're, they're more frightened of you than you are of them, you know, all that. <laughs> I think yeah, you're getting really. men confused with spiders, Janet. <laughs> <laughs> it's an easy Slightly mistake. So, through being on Blue Peter, you became famous. And also with Sophie Ellis Baxter, just in case anyone's wondering who I mean, you've got a famous oh, daughter. Have, you, know, have you noticed any differences in how you were both treated as women in the limelight? Well, I think for a start, Sophie's in a very different industry. And although, you know, there are similarities very occasionally, I, I knew from the start that I didn't know anything. You know, the music business was a closed book to me and I, I was learning through her, really. But, I, you know, all my kids are like this. They're smart and they, they want to find out how the world works. They're not going to have things done to them. And Sophie, from the outset, has been adamant that she was going to be not in necessarily in control, but equally in control. You know, so that's that's been... A lovely thing to watch and to see that that came naturally to her and it wasn't something that she had to work out for herself. It didn't occur to her to be any other way. But also, of course, her fame is mahusif. You know, mine is a sort of reminder, <laughs> which is lovely. You know, to say Jan Ellis, Blue Peter. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love that. I really genuinely love it. And particularly now that I'm doing something different, I quite like being discovered all over again. Yeah. But I've watched Sophie navigate, you know, world fame. You know, we, we were abroad recently on holiday together and this group of Australian people came over and went, oh, my God, Sophie, because, you know, she's big in Australia. And you know, that's breathtaking. She has a lot of fans around the world. And that's, that's really not what the Peter's Reach is. So I've, I've loved tagging along for this bit and watching how well she navigates it. But it really is a different beast. Fair enough. Janet, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, I've had a lovely time. Thank you for listening. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we deliver a swift left hook to the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. This week I'm talking all the good news stories. There were probably some bad news stories too, but the normal news is bad enough, so I just don't want to talk about it. Now, you might remember a little while ago I was chatting to gold medal winners at the Rio Olympics top hockey birds, Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh, on this very podcast. Most recently, we were discussing GB Hockey's hopes of qualifying for the Tokyo Olympics, which are, of course, next year. And although they were hopeful, the rest of the world was not. They'd not been having a great time of it, the team, that is, so they were having to take a slightly convoluted route to qualification, but qualify they did. Hurrah! That's right, they finally secured their place after beating Chile in the playoffs at Lee Valley last weekend. They took a 3-0 lead on Saturday, adding to that a further 2-1 victory in the second leg, which came thanks to goals from Tess Howard and Laura Unsworth in the first seven minutes. Obviously, there's been a bit of a changing of the guard since that 2016 team with the Richardson Walshes, Sophie Bray, Krista Cullen all retired and legendary Alex Danson is long-term injured. But it'd be really great to see them progress and hopefully with a bit of time between now and next August, you know, 
And in doubly good news, our pals across the way, Ireland, have also qualified thanks to a dramatic sudden death penalty shootout against Canada. And it was Rasheen Upton who scored said penalty. And that means that Ireland's women's team qualify for the Olympics for the very first time. Let's stick with the luck of the Irish for now. I mean, it's not really luck, and that's a bit insulting, to be honest, especially when we're talking about a legend like Katie Taylor. The Irish boxer beat Greek Christina Linadutu on a unanimous points decision this weekend to become the WBO super lightweight champion, which actually makes her a two-weight champion. Taylor already owns all four belts at the £135 category, but the £140 category is, is a step up. Boom! Literally. Her opponent put her under a lot of pressure and Taylor sustained a cut above her right eye pretty early on, actually, but she made a stunning comeback to claim victory. So next up, ideally, she'll be looking for a unification bout with Jessica McCaskill, who holds the WBC and WBA titles. They have met before. That was back in 2017 and Taylor won the lightweight title in that meeting. Finally, some good news in the fight for equal pay, which is good because horrible news in the news news this week. That's a lot of newses. As well as the Australian Football Federation announcing that it will pay the Matildas, that's their women's team, the same as their male counterparts, some great news in the world of squash. That's right, guys. Squash. Not just the domain of angry men from the 80s, it seems. We don't talk about squash much, do we? It was announced this week that the female champion at the Women's World Championships to be held in Cairo this month will be paid more prize money than her male counterpart. The women's winner will earn 48,640 Egyptian dollars compared to the men's champion who will pocket 45,600. Squash. It's really big in Egypt, apparently. And they are well up for giving the women's game a bit of a bump up, which I've got to say I would like to see a lot more of across sport. That's all from me this week. Did you like that? It was nice, wasn't it? Mm, Yeah, I thought so. I'm sure it will all have gone to shit again by next week, but please do get in touch if you have any thoughts. I am at InspiroGen on Twitter, and I am trying really hard not to argue with strangers. So please do get in touch if you're not up for arguing. Thanks. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what did we watch this week? What disaster has befallen us this week? Yes. This week we watched The Day After Tomorrow. I knew that. That's why I'm wearing my big coat. Yeah, which is is quite confusing because it's already the day after tomorrow. It's a different day after tomorrow for us anyway. It's um, like time travel already. Yeah. Can't so did we watch the film Friday? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Except it, it, for us, it would be Wednesday. Yeah. See? Confusing. You're messing with my mind. Anyway, <laughs> um, The Day anymore. After Tomorrow, 2004, Roland Emmerich. It's our first Roland Emmerich. It will not be our last. No. What Roland Emmerich does differently to other disaster films is his disasters are always on a worldwide scale rather than a single you know, this plane is going to crash or this building is going to collapse or something. Mm-hmm. They are, the planet is fucked for whatever reason. His um, middle name is Epic. Yeah, uh, for the reason here, uh, the planet is fucked, it is because of a global climate catastrophe. Nature, you cruel mistress, tick, <laughs> tick. on the bingo card. <laughs> uh, 
starring in Home, Dennis Quaid, Jake Gyllenhaal, Emmy Rossum, and lots of other people. And this is something else that he does, Roland Emmerich does, and it's quite sensible. Rather than follow a band of survivors, he generally has it on this wider palette, this bigger platform, and therefore he can kill people because you're not really that attached to them because they are just there to serve a purpose. In this, we have people who are working in a weather centre and we spend about two and a half minutes with them and then they are blown off the face of the earth by a typhoon. And you're like, all right, great, okay, moving on. So they're quite death-filled, way more than your average, something like The Towering Inferno was death-filled. Yeah, it's true. I was glad that um, Roland Emmerich isn't that prescient, though. And, like, I know, obviously, there's weather conditions that could happen, that all this could come true, and that's where the fear factor comes in. But I'm going to choose to believe it doesn't because he has matched Dennis Quaid with a woman only, like, 15 years younger than him. And we all know that he likes them 40 years younger than him. So I think that means that this won't happen in real life. Okay. I was thinking Shia LaBeouf was in this, but it's when it's before then, 2004. It's when yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal was Shia LaBeouf and before Andrew Garfield was Shia, Shia LaBeouf. Shia, um, soz. I don't know. Oh, no, he's slightly older. Uh, the, it's slightly older than he than he should be in this. I mean, I think he's supposed to be about 17, isn't he, Jake Gyllenhaal? And he's probably in his early 20s. But about um, standard for Hollywood. Yeah, I don't really know enough about LaBeouf. Just that he was that, I feel like he's that kind of like, he's not anymore because Andrew Garfield, well, is someone else now, but he was that person who was like sort of... In everything. Forever the sort of youngish lad that was in things. There's just 17 pin-up. This is probably the only role that Jake Gyllenhaal played as a youngster in which he's not completely fucking weird. In, yeah, or, he's like, not channeling Donnie Darko here. No, he? <laughs> or the good girl, or no. things like that. I mean, he's actually quite normal in this. Quite mm. wholesome American teenager, which I'm not entirely sure sits right with Jake Gyllenhaal, but That's there you I have it. was Anyway, as you probably heard, Jen hasn't watched it. Um, so <laughs> what happens is the polar ice caps are melting. That's where we start um, with this grand sweep across Antarctica. Polar ice caps are melting. They're going into the sea. And uh, the cold water plunging into the sea is stopping the North Atlantic current. Is that what it's called? The thing that basically heats water. So, hello, Jen. Here's one for you. You've got hello, bad science or something, haven't you? Uh, what I've got is... Oh, I've got... Mate, I mean, you predicted I'd probably win, except I can't because I haven't... Yeah, provably bad science. Provably bad science. There you go. Yeah. That's not a thing that could happen. Is it not? Apparently, no. Okay. Apparently. What about the, there's a saline shortage or something, isn't it? There's not enough salt in the sea anymore. It's th- th- That's what it is. All of this is apparently nonsense. But it does sort of pass muster, doesn't it, while you're watching it? It seems you're like, oh, yeah, that's that's fine. I, so- I, sounds feasible. I don't, it does. I don't know enough about it to question it, but I'm sure people who do enough about it are going, what a load of shit. Sometimes there's not enough salt on my chips, so it turns out could not be enough salt in the ocean. Get it. Anyway, what this turns out to be is a harbinger of a new ice age. Because this is the third thing that's interesting about um, about Roland Emmerich's disaster films is the world is actually different at the end of them, which isn't normally what happens in disaster films. What, you, what they're attempting to do is get back to normality. Oh, whereas forever changed. Here, the world mm. is forever changed. And here it is. The entire of North America is plunged into an ice age and most of Europe. In fact, pretty much the entire northern hemisphere becomes unlivable it does follow uh, a small pack of survivors which is is uh, a hold up in new york's loveliest building 
New York Public Library. And it's great. I've run down the steps pretending I was being chased by a ghost. Yeah, me too. Yep, have to do. Has to be done. Your friend will get annoyed with you if you just go, no, I don't look like I'm running. Do it again. (laughs) Uh, Dennis Quaid is trying to reach his son. He is like an Arctic expert. Loads of other shit is is happening. Um, Tick on my bingo card, but I have to find my son. There you go. Also, um, hold up as the band of survivors is a homeless man and a dog, so I also get Pet Survives Carnage. You do. I I was thinking both of your sheets are way better, because I wrote all of them, and I picked the worst one when it comes to this film. It does try and make a couple of political points, obviously, but they're always a little bit over-egged. Well, for example, they're basically the president and the vice president are essentially uh, George W. Bush and um, Dick Cheney. They're basically Mm -hmm. representations of that, Dick Cheney being... The worst dick and the the president just being like ineffectual, which essentially is how that was. But then there's a bit where they everyone's trying to go south over the Rio Grande in the other direction, and rather than just leave that to sit there, they have to have a commentator say, "Oh, and then a dramatic reversal of uh, the way things normally are." People trying to get into Mexico, yeah. and you're like, "I think oh. we got that. I don't think you needed someone commentating that for us." But so, the thing is, Hannah, that, that usually it's people trying to get out of Mexico. So the showing that people trying to get into, into Mexico, Mexico oh, is different. Okay. Right. Because yeah. I would have missed that, I think, yeah. if, unless yeah. it had been spelled out to me in very clear terms. So do I not get, I wish that guy was the actual president? No. Oh, okay. good God, no. No. And he's um, dead anyway, so you'd you be shit. But overall, I he actually dies. think for a silly, like, big budget film, it's actually all right. I thought it was, it's not bad. It's, it's a perfectly entertaining watch it on a Sunday afternoon when it's raining outside film, I would say. It is a very entertaining film, I agree. But it did lead me to fill in the final box on my bingo card with the phrase, where are the fucking women? was watching it for a full five minutes and there were no women. All the experts are men. All the people in the weather centre are men. The people on the street are men. They're not people. Why am I saying people? The men mm. are men. There are no women. And in the whole film, there's probably like four. And also then they don't really get to do very much apart from be rescued. And the, the one woman who is a smart scientist and they're like, you're on the team, is immediately creeped over by another member of the yeah. team as if to say we know we've just said that a woman's intelligent but let's not forget that she's also hot and i it, can't it, forget it that. oh it drove me it drove me it drove me to not be able to say the word drive yeah. or drove anymore I, i'm i'm going to agree i actually added a box which is but where are they going to the toilet <laughs> um, because i want to know how this they all how shut Hannah themselves wins every week <laughs> how they shut themselves into um I didn't win the first week. Uh, no, no, from now on, I mean. Right, they shut themselves into uh, a big room in the library and the door basically freezes shut. And they're all in there, huddled around the fireplace for we don't know how long. But it's going to be a while. Where are they going to the toilet? In the room. That, it will have, but, but, but nobody's like... Nobody's There's no about scene this. where they're all just saying, oh, it stinks of piss in here, guys. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they don't have to because they know. I've got to say, though, the toilet thing is an interesting one across all films because quite often people seem not to need a toilet break ever. Well, that's I don't know whose joke it is, but there was a stand up who has a joke about 24 um, and about how basically if they want 24 to literally supposed to be like 24 hours of television that takes place over 24 hours. When does he go to the toilet? Exactly. 
Can you imagine if they made a film of us? It'd be predominantly toilet breaks. Yeah. <laughs> really interesting stuff. Anyway, I'm going to hurry up because I need a piss. <laughs> um, what I've got on my list is uh, so many traffic jams. I, I'm going to have that. There's a lot of traffic jams in New York. My eyes, the CGI, the first time I'm ticking that box, those wolves are awful. The wolves are awful. I've got to say, they've learned how to do animals loads better, yeah. but that wave is incredible. Uh, it's and really it still good. stands up, yeah. I think. It was just like, wow, that yeah. is really, really good. He's good with water, not with wolves. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of that. Oh, something's incredibly close. Cut back to them. It seems to be further away than it was the last time. But um, The Father Ted effect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm having uh, my eyes in CGI because those wolves are bad. Uh, Cassandra ignored, obviously. Uncanny prediction of a real-life disaster. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Ooh. I've told you I'm ruling that out because he didn't get the Dennis Quaid age difference right. Okay. I'm going to get take local radio reports because uh, the TV, um, the weather as the ty- as the... Hi, typhoons? What are they called? The little ones? Tsunami. Cyclones? Oh, the cyclones. The tornadoes. Cy- tornadoes, like devastate Los Angeles. They take out basically an entire weather reporting team in a number of comical fashions. One of them's car is crushed by a, a lorry and another one gets full on hit in the face by a passing sign. Yeah. Um, so I'm having that. Two male journalists down, guys, because women can't report on the news. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm on one, two, three, four... Oh, nobody sprays their ankle and gets left behind, so I can't. Uh, where are they going to the toilet? Dramatic strings. So I think I'm on five or six. I would like to add one, even though I haven't seen a film, but I remember it from the trailer and also just because of films. Um, something about a landmark, like a, a sort of... Fox I've got a farewell oh, major landmark. What? I've done pretty well with uh, The Day After Tomorrow. I've done pretty well with Wednesday. I'm, yeah. I've got a question about one of them, but I'll go through the ones that I've definitely got. Pet Survives Carnage. But I have to find my son. Nature, you cruel mistress. Farewell, major landmark. Bridge collapse? I'm pretty sure bridges collapse. I don't know that we saw it. I don't know that we saw it. So this is what happens when we don't all stay together. Yeah, there's a big one of that. Big one of those. And where are the fucking women? I'm having that one. So I've already got six. And I'm wondering, and I know it isn't exactly how you meant it when you wrote it down, but the ironic death of a US prime minister dying on his way to cross the Mexican border... Um, the US president yeah, yeah. I think solid. Or, or, or the queen gets the taken queen. down in a helicopter perhaps yeah. we should have death of the royal family in there <laughs> Jen's that the only one with, a, with an empty box no. so many helicopters there are a lot of helicopters yeah. I wasn't expecting that great is there a tunnel that only an idiot would try to cross I don't think so no there's got to be a Brexit analogy surely like just generally well this is a bit of a pickle isn't it yeah, I'm not making the effort to think of it for you though Jen I think that's this is a bit of a pickle isn't it <laughs> That's, no. that's a solid Brexit analogy. There doesn't seem to be very many winners. I think that's quite a solid Brexit analogy. Um, anyone English in it? The Queen, does she have a piss poor English accent? Uh, no, all the English people in it are actually English. Uh, there is a really strange bit where they all support Manchester United for no apparent reason, given the variety of accents on display. <laughs> Which well, that's I went, quite no. true to life, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they also refer, no, 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 but they also refer to them as Manchester United. The whole way through it. Yeah, I am quite that's... sad you didn't get to see it, Jen, because he watches the football while going, kick it, kick it, kick well, it. Yeah. That's basically me when I watch <laughs> football. Kick it away from them, away from them, the other way. I take it back. Apparently one person watches football okay. like that. But yeah. no, they are genuinely English people, so unfortunately you don't get that. Um, I'm guessing there isn't an event that's too important to cancel because they're, they're just fucked with the weather, innit? Yeah. Um, can't have events anymore. Too much no. weather. Probably bad science we got there. It's got to be a weather geek. Oh, there's yeah, loads, yeah, of, loads of them. Uh, All men. <laughs> did Dennis Quaid's relationship with the woman 15 years 
junior to him was it saved by no oh, oh no. i don't know i think there was a there was hope they they were separated but then they both tell each other they love each other on the phone yeah but i don't know that they that we don't know Maybe that she ever makes it i think it it, could, it was salvageable i reckon that relationship okay i think i think we were meant to think oh if they all get through this they're gonna be at it i'm guessing lifts are fine because you can't have lifts because of the weather um no, yeah they're there is a there is a, a literally a scene about not getting in a lift. Is there? Yeah. Oh, why didn't I watch it? Can you smell burning? No, no, no too much snow. Too, too much snowing. snow doesn't. No fires they in do, snow. They do fire a lot of the fire. They do set, set fire to a lot of stuff. I'm guessing there aren't any like comedy cameos in this because it's quite worthy, right? Uh, I wouldn't say it's no. I mean, it's not worthy, but it's earnest. It's earnest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely is. Got to be a sobbing child. Um... No, there's no. barely any children in it at all, actually. Because oh, the weather, a, probably. Do you know what's interesting? That um, oh, the, the I read an interview child. with Roland Emmerich, and he said that apparently he... This is because I was tarting around looking for information on this. He said apparently there was a load of resistance to the fact that Adrian Lester has a white wife in it. Really? Yeah. And you think, in 2004? Why, Really? Jeez. By, like, the studio. That's mad. Isn't it? Um, I got okay. seven. Well, that's better than me. I think I've got four. Mickey, you win the barren wasteland that is the day after tomorrow. Okay, and that means I get to choose, right? It does. What's the Michael Caine one with the bees called? The swarm. Can we watch the swarm? Yeah. It might be quite hard the to bees. find. But... Pull my finger. Uh. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.